Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. I want you to use your imaginations to begin our time back in Mark's Gospel. Use your imaginations to go on a journey and to transport yourselves back to the world of first century Israel. To life as one of Jesus' closest followers. Can you do that? Can you picture what it was like being there, being near Jesus? A disciple, even. One of the close disciples, having been hand-picked by Jesus himself, kind of going around with Jesus, and you and your gang, and he are in high demand. Uh, my clicker, which way do I go? No, wrong way, this way, here we go. Imagine how brilliant that would have been. In, this is how I would describe it, how class that would have been. Hand-picked by Jesus, high in demand, drawing crowds that were so big you couldn't really get on with doing the things that you were trying to do. And maybe in amongst those crowds you witnessed miracles. Not maybe, definitely. Left, right and centre. Healings, feedings, sorts of things we were just speaking about, singing about. That people were coming to you in this crowd, and they had needs, and as they left, those needs hadn't just been met, but met and then some, exceeded even. And even if in that situation, there were scribes and Pharisees and those kind of the baddies that we've encountered so far in the Gospel of Mark, even if they came and they tried to kick up a storm, even though they came and tried to argue with Jesus and kind of muddy the waters about what he was doing, the guy that you're following, your master, has always got an answer. Has always got an answer for every charge they're able to bring. Imagine how class, how brilliant that was. Imagine that before all of that had happened to you, you'd been waiting. You'd been wanting God to do something, to send someone who was going to be a rescuer. Someone who was going to come and do something special for you, for your family, and for your people. And now, you realize that he's here. You can see him. You can touch him. You can smell him and it's so obvious imagine that moment of it dawning on you having spent time with Jesus in this context and you feel like a dummy because it's taken you so long to come to this recognition that here is the rescuer here is the fulfillment of all your hopes and your dreams and your expectations You see it. You understand it. You can't deny it. You don't want to deny it. You want to shout about it. You want to declare it. Courage starts to build in the pit of your stomach. 
I'm going to say it out loud for the first time. Perhaps I've been thinking it for a while. But Jesus comes along and he says, who do you say that I am? And all of a sudden, the words come through your mouth. They pass your lips. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You are the rescuer. Imagine being in that position. How class, how amazing that would have been. Like, life couldn't get better except in Jesus doing this and being who he is more and more and more. You've just got behind you wonderful experiences in time and mapped out before you day after day just goodness and greatness and pleasure and everything that you want to happen in life. How class. How amazing would that have been. But then all of a sudden there's a little rain cloud. It's a sunny day, isn't it, if all those kind of things are happening. But a rain cloud, as Jesus goes off script, says something that you weren't necessarily expecting him to say. Although, I guess we've come to recognise with Jesus, haven't we, through Mark's Gospel, that we should always be expecting him to do the unexpected. He goes totally off script and says, you're right, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the rescuer. But this is what that means. This is what this looks like. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. But don't you worry, because after three days, I'm going to be alive again. Hands up, who knows what happens next in the story. Do, we, do you know where we are? We're in Mark chapter 8. Jesus has come. We've been imagining ourselves as Peter, okay? We've been imagining ourselves as Peter, handpicked by Jesus, having experienced all the miracles that we've investigated through Mark's gospel, having come to that realization, having been confronted with the question, who do you say I am, having given the right answer, then having heard Jesus explain how the Son of Man would have to be rejected, suffer, and be killed before three days rising again. What happens next? Anybody brave enough to shout out what happens next? We, we, we just about looked at it back in November. No? Peter argues, yeah. I mean, again, put yourself in Peter's shoes. How class all of that that I've been describing would have been. And then Jesus, your hope, your dreams in front of you saying, it's, it's going to go badly. It's going to turn sour. It's going to be a time not filled with everything exciting and wonderful and just more of the same of what we've experienced, but it's going to turn dark. Peter, <clears throat> famously, or at least I thought it was famous, I would have expected a few more hands, maybe you're feeling shy this new year, famously rebukes Jesus. He says to Jesus, that cannot happen. I won't allow it. Stop talking such nonsense. We're going to take over the world together, you and me and these guys, and it's going to be great. And Jesus has got a really specific response to Peter, and it's quite a strong response. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. And, and it's such a powerful response that this is what we normally do with it. We normally stop the story right there. We normally paint Peter as someone who rashly 
you know, speaks things sooner than he should without having thought things. He's kind of like a, uh, an emotional guy. He responds in all situations with a, with a hot head, with a rash temper. And Jesus strongly, he puts, him, he puts him in his place and says, you have not understood, Peter. You do not understand. And the things that you are speaking, they're, they're satanic. They're against me. Get behind me, Satan. It's a really powerful part of Mark's gospel. And we get these ideas about who Peter is and what he's understood. And really what we're to understand from that conversation. Of course, right, we see Jesus. He isn't just a, uh, a rescuer who's going to come and to conquer uh, the Roman occupiers. He is someone who's going to have to suffer and die for his people. And that's what Peter needed to learn. Well, we're going to look at that bit, but then a bit straight away afterwards as well. Because I think actually that story that I've just described to you feeds into what Jesus has got to say next. And I think if we understand it rightly, we'll see that Peter was someone who'd thought about what Jesus was saying and understood far more of the implications than we'd give him credit for and probably far more of the implications than we've understood ourselves. So if you've got your Bibles, please open them. Mark chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. If you've got a church Bible, it's about that far through. If you want to have a Bible, they're over there on the desk. By when, you can by all means pick them up. The text is going to appear on the screen as I read it out, but just keep Mark chapter 8 open because we're going to be referencing it all the way through. So starting with verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he, Jesus, called the crowd along, uh, to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their life? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their life? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. When he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. Now we, we normally major on that first part of the story. Of Peter so clearly not having understood who Jesus is. What the Messiah was going to be. The rescuer. What he would have to suffer, suffer. But look how Jesus responds. He responds with that strong statement. That rebuke. Get behind me Satan. But more significantly, I think, he responds by showing us, telling and declaring to the crowd, Peter hasn't got this very wrong, you know. Peter has seen and he has understood something that I want you all to see and understand too. Jesus calls the crowd there because he wants them to think this through in exactly the same way as Peter had thought it through. And Peter had seen this. That the path, the journey, the way that the master was going to take 
was going to be the path, the way, the journey that those who follow the master were going to have to take too. This is what Peter had seen. Peter had seen that following Jesus as a disciple, aligning himself, was actually attaching himself to Jesus. That wherever Jesus was headed, that's where Peter and the rest of them could expect to go to. And if you like, Jesus is giving a sales pitch here at the end. The world's worst ever sales pitch. He's saying, follow me. Come, attach yourself to me. Walk in my footsteps as I get rejected, as I, get, as I suffer, and as I'm killed. He's saying that attaching yourself to me, who is going through all of these things is actually for you going to be being rejected, suffered, and killed. And when you think about that, you can see why Peter responded so strongly, can't you? You can see why Peter had thought that he was aligning himself with someone who was going to rescue people. Someone who was, when everything got uh, sorted out in the end, was going to be on top. Someone who was going to go into Jerusalem and sit upon a throne. Someone who was going to have all the power, all the authority, all the sway. He wanted to be a part of that. It sounds appealing. But now Jesus was saying, the one you're following, the one you're attaching yourself to is going to be rejected, suffer, and killed. And Peter saw so plainly, if that's true for Jesus, then that's going to be true for us. And Jesus agrees with him. Jesus says, yes. If you're going to follow me, it's going to mean being rejected, suffered, and killed. And I was trying to think um, of situations or scenarios in our culture, in our society, where we align ourselves with people to such an extent that what happens to them happens to us. And you know, I think so often our relationships are flimsy. Our relationships are disposable. And the strength and the weight of this doesn't carry over. We can sometimes maybe see that picture in epic fantasies. Uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You've got that relationship that happens between Frodo and Sam. And Sam aligns himself with Frodo and basically says, Mate, wherever you go, I'm going to. I'm with you until the bitter end. If you're going to... I don't want to spoil the story for anybody, but if you're going to go over to Mordor... If you're going to walk through those dark and dangerous lands, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to go through it every single step of the way. We see that, don't we, in that sort of story. We understand it. I think we probably see it best in our culture with our obsession with sports and how we align ourselves with sports teams. Okay, here's a little quiz for you to see who the real sports fans are. Does anybody recognize that photo? It's very blurry there. It, it's wonderful on the screen at the back. Can you see somebody crying? They're devastated. Does anybody recognize it? There's a chance. The colors give it away, red and black. That was the away kit for Man City in the 2011-2012 season. That was the fan who famously, I really need to figure out what famously means because you're all looking very blankly at me this morning, who famously broke into tears when Swansea beat Man City 1-0. I 
Man City had been uh, pushing for the Premier League title. They'd spent millions and millions of pounds. Presumably this chap had followed them through highs and lows in the past, through relegations, through Derby Day defeats, all of these sorts of things. And all of a sudden, there was this hope. They were first in the league. There was only a few games left. And they lost 1-0 to newly promoted Swansea City. Man United went above them in the league that day. And he is devastated. He'd aligned himself so much with the team that what happened out there on the pitch affected him. They lost. They suffered. And so did he. A lot of people made fun of him for it, but I say fair play. He cared. He was aligned with his team. How about this photograph? Okay, that's far more blurry, but maybe you'll get that one. Does anybody know what that's a picture of? Henman Hill? No, I'll give you a clue. There's lots of people wearing black and white and Swansea City shirts. So this is the celebration that took place after Swansea City got promoted. Um, Swansea City currently play in the championship, but you don't need to have that long a memory to remember that we got promoted from the championships via the playoff under the um, coaching and the managing of Brendan Rodgers and... Thousands, literally thousands of people filled the streets of Swansea to celebrate that fact. People who had aligned themselves with that team and they were celebrating because they'd won something, they'd achieved something and the followers were going through it as well. Now I imagine that was an especially sweet day for all those people who had been supporting the Swans through the dark days of um, near extinction of nearly going out of business, of nearly being relegated from the Football League, all of that. How wonderful to have experienced all that and then finally to know that we were going to play in the Premier League. That's good, isn't it? That's really good. This is what I think we mean, really. Football, uh, I know there are people who this will work in their minds for uh, rugby teams. It could be national sports teams, even national sports heroes. We share in the victories and we share in the defeats. Whatever happens to them happens to us. Now, how do you, how do you start supporting a club? Uh, presumably, there are Swansea City fans, there are Scarlets fans, there are even Ospreys fans amongst us this morning. And there's a sense in which we do that just because they're our local team. But if I was to ask genuinely this morning and try and find out with a little survey which the most popular team in this room is, fo football-wise, it would more likely than the Swans be somebody like Liverpool or Manchester United or, dare I even say it, Chelsea. Because when we're choosing to align ourselves to a club, we basically end up going with the team that gives us the best sales pitch. The team that basically says to us, attach yourself to us, Buy our kit, uh, come and watch us in the cup or in the league, spend your money on that, and you will experience glory. Like, there's no other way of explaining why so many people in South Wales support Manchester United and Liverpool, apart from the fact that in recent history, they are clubs that have experienced a lot of glory. And that's kind of how you come into supporting a team, isn't it? It's either your local team or it's the team that has promised you glory. Now, there are people who, when those glory days are gone, abandon ship. And I hope anybody who's abandoned ship 
with the swans now that they've been relegated, we give them the cold shoulder. And such as the time that Swansea get promoted again, we say, no, no, you weren't with us in the relegation times. You don't get to enjoy this. When Liverpool win the league this year, all those fans who have fallen by the wayside, we'll say to them, no, no, you weren't there through the dark days of, of um, losing to Burnley in the third, or Barnsley, whoever it was, in the third round of the FA Cup. You weren't with us then. You can't be with us now. When Manchester, no, Manchester United will never return to glory. But you, you get what I mean. You get what I mean. Um, these, these teams give us this sail picture and, and we jump on board when things are good. And the question really is whether we're willing to stay there, whether we're willing to maintain that relationship through thick and through thin. It's hard. It's hard. And going back to Peter and Jesus, Peter's really feeling that now. Because he's jumped on board when things are good, when things are great. He thought that he was backing a winner. He thought he was backing someone that he was going to be able to bask in the glory of his victory. And now Jesus is telling him, revealing to him, that that's going to look an awful lot like defeat. That it's going to involve rejection, suffering and even death. You can understand why Peter responded so strongly. Jesus says, doesn't he, to the crowd now, not just to Peter, following me is taking up your cross. It's dying to self and taking up your cross. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that even here today, and he especially wanted those people who had experienced the wonderful um, uh, days worth healing and feeding and all of that sort of thing. Following me is following me to the cross. And it's a vivid image. Denying oneself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. He's not just speaking about something we use as a decoration or as a logo. He's, he's, he's encouraging them towards... Um, a symbol of, an instrument of execution. It's vivid, isn't it? It's powerful. It's more than that. He's explaining to them that they're not just to expect to follow in him, but to resign themselves to that. It's the picture of the dead, condemned man walking the lonely walk to the executioner's chair. It's strong. It's powerful, and as I say, I think it's probably the worst sales pitch in all of history. It's an awful invitation, isn't it? To say, yeah, stick with me, boys, and this is what awaits you. A question we should be asking when we read this story, maybe if you've never heard the full story of what Jesus came to do, and how it all pans out in the end, is why didn't Peter abandon Jesus at this point? Why didn't the disciples and the crowds being confronted with that leg it? Find someone who offered them something far more appealing than this. Why is it that 2,000 years later people still say yes to Jesus 
even though his invitation to attach ourselves to him is an invitation to be rejected, perhaps, to suffer, perhaps, and maybe even to die for his sake. Why is that? Well, faith isn't blind. Don't know whether you knew that. Some people like to think of the Christian faith as just closing your eyes to uh, reason, to the facts, to history, to things that make sense, and just um, crossing your fingers and hoping that Jesus is the right answer. That's not the case at all. And Jesus goes on actually to try to persuade people, to try to persuade the crowd and to show the crowd that if they use their brains... Why following him, even in spite of this, is properly worthwhile. He doesn't want us just to stop there in our thinking. He wants us to go further. And you see that he does that in the next part of it, where he speaks about dying to self to save yourself. Now, it seems contradictory, doesn't it? That Jesus comes and he says, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever would give up their life will find it. He starts off and he says, well, if you've got this desire to save your life, you're ruined. But in the very next breath says, but you know what's really going to tempt you? Following me, because then you'll save your life. Like when you were listening, or when you go home and you read it again today, this week, whenever it is, you might think to yourself, what am I supposed to feel, Jesus? What am I supposed to understand from this? Am I supposed to want to save my life, or am I supposed to want to let go of it? Because if you listen to the first sentence, the second sentence doesn't make sense. And if you listen to the second sentence, the first sentence doesn't make sense. How can I die to self and save self? What's going on here? We need to understand how Jesus here and through his entire ministry is redefining for us what it means to live. He's redefining what it means for us to be human. Truly what it is to live. Humanity, we, we know this. We open our eyes, we, we look at our own lives, we look at the, the lives of people around us, we study the world as it is today, the world as it has been over the last 100 years, and we cannot come to any conclusion other than we've lost our way. Big time we've lost our way. We've made so much out of so little. Our lives are empty our lives are pointless our lives are meaningless and worse than that in pursuit of such small things we do such terrible things to other people we have as a race totally and utterly forgotten what it means for us to be alive life isn't what it should be that's what Jesus is saying here He's confronting people who think to live is to chase stuff, is to chase experience, is to put themselves first and foremost and to hell with anybody else. He says that person, that life, Peter and disciples and crowds and Amford Evangelical Church gathered together in Clanderbeer Hall, that life needs to die. Because even when we're living it, when we're drawing breath, that's not really living at all. That is never what God had intended for us. Jesus shows us what full life truly is. What a better life is through how he lives it himself and through what he calls us to do. 
And he says that this life that you'll find is better even if it includes suffering. Life for ourselves needs to die, says Jesus, because it's worthless. And yet living for him, living for the gospel's sake, living for one another is what we were created to experience. That's what life is. At different points and in different ways, the Bible makes this exact same claim. Jesus says eternal life, fullest life, um, uh, life to the full is knowing the Father. Is knowing the Father. And knowing him through Jesus. We study in the scriptures what humans are supposed to do with their lives. And God is very clear. Love God. Love others. Jesus says, do you know what? You need to die to your selfish ambitions. You need to die to these ideas of what it will mean to be satisfied. Even at the expense of others. And then, following him, satisfaction will come. True life, full life, that is worth even suffering. He says, give up on living for yourself and find so much more. And he goes further, doesn't he? He goes further and he lays this challenge. He asks a a rhetorical question. He says in his kind of best Obi-Wan Kenobi voice, search your feelings, you know that what I have to say is true. We know that our lives are more than the possessions that we own, don't we? We know that our lives are more than the experiences even that we have. And we certainly know that it's more than the cost, the, the, the human cost that we put on others and on ourselves to get that. Jesus asks you, doesn't he, what can a man give to save his soul, his life? Like, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and yet lose your life? Think about that genuinely. That's the question that Jesus is laying at us even today. What do we think is most important in our lives? What are we going to get that is going to make us think, do you know what? I have made it. That was worthwhile. In one of the other Gospels, Jesus tells the story of a man who set out to build a tower. And the man starts building the tower, and he's full of enthusiasm. Life is good. He's got money in the bank. He's got bricks to make it. He's got the time to get involved. Only, he's not even halfway through the tower, and he runs out of cash. He runs out of bricks. He runs out of energy and enthusiasm to finish the job. And all that he has left is this monument to his wasted time his wasted investment. And Jesus tells that story because the point that he's trying to make is that when people are deciding whether or not they're willing to follow him, whether or not they're willing to attach themselves to him, they need to genuinely ask the question, am I willing to meet the cost? Am I willing to pay the price? Am I willing to be a supporter of Jesus in the good times and the bad, through the glory and the promotions and the trophies and the relegations and the boardroom battles 
and the investors who come in and want to rob the club of everything that it's got. Jesus says, you need to, before you decide to follow me, ask the question, are you willing to count the cost? And he asks us here, he asks the crowd, he asks Peter, don't you think that your life is worth so much more than just living it for yourself? He's inviting us this morning to ask that same question. Lastly, he moves on, doesn't he? And he shares this picture of the ultimate reality. He says he lays it out in stark terms. If you are ashamed of me now, I will be ashamed of you when glory finally comes. I kind of suggested earlier, didn't I, that there are some people who will have jumped on certain bandwagons in football. Some people who will have been a Manu fan when Manu were winning the league, will have been a Chelsea fan when Chelsea started winning the league. I kid you not. I was chatting to a boy, he was about 10 or 11 years old, two years ago. And I asked him what his favourite team was. And I was expecting Man City, Man U, Liverpool, Swans maybe. His answer was Leicester City. Now, there is absolutely no way that you can comprehend a 10-year-old boy supporting Leicester City other than the fact that they had just won the Premier League. I guarantee you, you ask that same lad today who he supports, it is not Leicester City, is it? It's certainly not Leicester City. I remember when I was growing up, just beginning to take an interest into football. It's an interest that's continued. I don't know whether you could tell that or not. Tottenham Hotspur, Tottenham, as Ozzy Ardiles used to call them, in 1991, they won the FA Cup. And at the time, I didn't think there was anything better than that, winning the FA Cup. So I loved Tottenham Hotspurs for about three months because I quickly realized that the league was more important and Tottenham weren't even in the race to win the league, so I attached myself to Liverpool who had very recently won the league and won all manner of European Cups and have had to suffer through that for the last nearly 25 years. But here Jesus is saying, do you know what? If you're not willing to attach yourself to me through the sufferings, through the rejections, through the agonies, and even through the death that I'm going to die in your place on the cross, I'm not going to let you be attached to me when I come in glory. I'm not going to let you be attached to me when we experience this ultimate victory in the end. Peter, disciples, crowd, yeah, life was class. When people were coming, when people wanted to be a part of it, when people wanted to experience all that, yes. But following me, true life is so much more than that. Following Jesus is awesome. I don't want you to leave this morning and to think that the opposite is true. I don't want you to leave this morning and to think that if you're enjoying your life, that somehow there's something wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. That for Peter and the disciples to be a part of Jesus' healing and feeding a miraculous ministry, that that wasn't tremendous. Do you know there are so many benefits to following Jesus? And we normally only speak about those. That's why I haven't really spoken about them much. Christians, are you with me when I say that following Jesus is awesome? 
when you think about the family that you get, the body of Christ, to be sons and daughters of a Father in heaven. If you are someone who has truly understood the forgiveness that comes through Jesus, you cannot but say, that is worth attaching myself to in the most positive way possible. Wynne was speaking last week, wasn't he, about hope as opposed to fear of peace instead of worry and anxiety. We get that with Jesus. Even now, in the midst of all of our sufferings, it's awesome. It's fantastic. You're allowed to experience that. You're allowed to enjoy that. You're allowed to enthuse about that and thank God for that and suggest to other people that they can experience that too. This is true. Jesus is the rescuer, Peter. He is going to win. But following Jesus is also a death sentence. It's also a call to us, isn't it? To put him first, not ourselves. To mimic him. To follow literally in his footsteps. Imagine, do you ever play that as kids? If someone would walk out in the snow to try and follow literally in their footsteps. To put others' needs before our own, even to the point of death. Following Jesus will feel and more than feel, it will really be the experience of being rejected, of suffering for his sake, of self-denial and self-renunciation, which is suffering in so many other ways for our brothers' and sisters' sakes, going without for the sake of the gospel and Jesus Christ. Perhaps even it might mean being killed. We are so fortunate that that does not seem like a present reality to us here in Wales in the 21st century. But we know when people like Clyde Briggs come and speak to us about the persecuted church around the world, that is what Jesus' invitation is. To come and to literally die. Not just to die in that self of rejecting self, but to literally be killed. People follow it. But ultimately, this is what Jesus is saying to Peter, to the crowd, and to us, that following Jesus is life. Following Jesus is the life that we never knew we could have. That experience of knowing God and being known. Of having life as it was intended to be. The satisfaction that comes from serving and loving other people. It's the life that we thought we could never experience or get for ourselves. And it's the life that we inherit as we attach ourselves to him. So Jesus' sales pitch is this. Come, die to self, pick up your cross, follow me. And in in doing that, experience the fullest, truest life you will ever know. Now we have before us this morning communion. And communion is like a little picture of that to us. It's that drama played out of following and attaching ourselves to someone who had to die. Of dying to selves and saying, do you know what, Jesus, my life isn't about me. It's about you. And it's about the life that you call me into of loving and serving other people. And it's a life and a death that leads for us to life. 
So I want to invite you this morning to take the bread, a picture of his body broken, and the, the, the juice, a picture of his blood shed. Take it as an act of following and attaching yourself to Jesus in his death to find the truest and fullest of lives. I'll um, come down in a second, help pass them out, and afterwards we'll sing a little bit. Um, but I'll pray over it now for all of us before we do that. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus' willingness to be open and honest with Peter and the crowds and even with us. That life following him isn't always a bed of roses. It's so often the exact opposite. It isn't just having our wants met but having needs that we didn't even know satisfied. Lord, help us who are followers of Jesus to keep our eyes fixed on him as we follow him through rejection and suffering and dying to self and Lord, even the, the physical suffering of death that might come. Help us to keep our eyes on him and that glory and that victory that awaits. Help us as we take the bread and the wine, the symbol of his death, but also to see, Lord God, the symbol of the life that we inherit through that. And I pray especially, Lord God, this morning for anyone here who has come not believing in Jesus or has come and has only attached themselves to him in the good times. Lord, I pray that you would give them the confidence and the courage that you ultimately would give to Peter and to other disciples and to other believers around the world throughout history and even today, Lord God, that that life is so worth it that it is worth being rejected and suffering for his name's sake. Lord, people have, help people to have the clarity of that and the courage to lay claim to it themselves by faith today. Lord, perhaps taking the bread and the wine for the first time. Lord, we pray that you would bless it to us and you would bless the time of singing as well. That you would stir our souls to see that following Jesus in any and all circumstances is so worth it. For Jesus' sake, we ask. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>